The passage I'd like to share in today is from, excuse me, is from 2 Kings 3, 9 to 20. In your pew Bibles, that's page 308. 2 Kings 3, 9 to 20. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What exclaimed the king of Israel? Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Saphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. But now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And he said, This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom. The land was filled with water. Let us pray. Fathers, we come and open your word and you open it to us, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to challenge us, to change us, especially in this new year, as we want to glorify you more and more in our lives and in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are 19 days, only 19 days into a new year. How are the New Year's resolutions coming? A man decided to make a New Year's resolution to lose some weight, and after a few days, his wife was walking by the bathroom and saw him standing on the scale, and he was sucking in his stomach a whole bunch as he stood on the scale, and she snidely commented, that doesn't help. He said, yes, it does. Now I can see the numbers. <laughs> so what is your New Year's resolution or maybe resolutions? What new thing are things that you want to happen in your life? Some area or areas where you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your finances or relationship. Maybe it's your marriage, or a child, or a relative, or a friend, or a co-worker. Maybe it's your health, or weight, or some personality trait or bad habit that you know God and others and you yourself want to deal with. A survey found that 34% of resolutions made are related to money. 38% are related to weight. 47% are related to self-improvement or education. And 31% related to relationships. But the sad fact is that resolutions have a very short retention rate. After the first week, 25% have fallen off the cart. After one month, 
46, almost half have stopped. After six months, 64% have stopped. And after a year, only about 3 to 10% of those committed souls have succeeded in keeping their New Year's resolutions. I know that I personally want to take off a few pounds. I've lost about six and hopefully are going for more. I am what they call an emotional eater. When I'm sad, I want to eat. And when I'm glad, I want to eat and celebrate. So I struggle with eating and snacking. But recently I've been doing pretty well and not allowing circumstances to trigger my snacking. A few days ago, I decided to start working on our taxes to try to get them done earlier this year. Over the past few days, I've spent hours on the desktop and the laptop computers recording all of our expenditures from the past year. And the day before yesterday, don't be envious, I had it all done. Seven single-spaced pages filled with dates of the what and where and cost and where it was paid from. And yesterday morning, I decided to review it. I turned the laptop on and clicked to open the file, and clicked to open the file, and clicked to open the file. It showed that the file was there, but that the path, whatever that is, to bring up the file was gone. Gone. They call that the agony of delete. <laughs> now, I don't remember deleting it, but somehow the path to open it is gone. Now, remember... I'm an emotional eater. And yes, I started to snack a bit. But then my dear wife, Deb, reminded me that I had printed the whole document the day before to review it. So I had most of it printed. Even though I don't have it on the drive, it's still printed. Aren't we thankful for spouses that think beyond the crisis? And that made me quit snacking. Back to the resolution track. Remember, it's only the 19th day of the new year. Much too short of a time to admit defeat yet. So I'm here to encourage you. No matter what it is that you are feeling led to work on in your life, I'm here to proclaim to you it is possible, it is doable, it is changeable, it is achievable. I think the main reason that New Year's resolutions are many times not effective is because we do not truly commit ourselves to what a resolution is. Resolution has in the word resolve. Resolve means to rethink, to redo. It means a revolt, literally a warfare, an overthrowing, an uprising, to change power or government over your life. It means to take control and rule over your own life again. It's time to make a decision to decide. It's time to decide. The scripture we're sharing today challenges us not just to make a re resolution, but also to begin taking deliberate steps and trusting for that resolution to become a reality. In the Old Testament book of Kings, we, we read of an at-one-time plowman named Elisha that was chosen to replace Elijah as the prophet of God. And 2 Kings 3 sets the scene for today's message. Three kings had come together to fight against a king in Moab who had rebelled against them. They set out to fight a battle, and they expected to win easily, but it wasn't going as they had planned. So we read in verse 9, So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. The journey had been and was a long, hot, and slow one. 
took them seven days to go about 100 miles, which is only about 15 miles a day. And then they ran out of water. At times, the valleys in that area had plenty of water in the canals of water called Wadi, but this was not one of those times. So these three conquering kings, with their soldiers and animals, marched for seven days, and over their seven days had totally exhausted their water reserves and were now dry. And this is the response in verse 10. What? Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? Okay. Sure, march an entire army across a desert, march them into the desert in a circle for seven days, men and animals, then blame God because you didn't plan well enough but making sure you brought enough water. Don't they sound a little like the Israelites in Exodus? God had delivered them from years of slavery and bondage to the Egyptian Pharaoh. He then sent ten plagues to force Pharaoh to let his people go. The first plague was the plague of blood. Water turned to blood, causing the fish to die and fill the land with an awful odor. The second was the plague of frogs. Frogs overran the country in their bedrooms, beds, and kitchens. Then there was a plague of lice. Then a plague of flies. Then a plague of disease. All the horses and cattle and camels, oxen and sheep died. Then there was a plague of boils all over their bodies. Then a plague of hail, unlike any they had experienced before, and it was mixed with fire, and it devoured the crops and the homes and even people. Then there was a plague of locusts. They flew in and ate all the vegetation. Can you believe the hard heart of Pharaoh through all of this? And Moses kept returning saying, let God's people go. God says, let my people go. Then a plague of darkness, so dark it could be felt. And it lasted not just a few moments, but the darkness lasted for three days. And then the last plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn of the people and animals, and Pharaoh's son, his firstborn son, also died. And that was the straw that broke Pharaoh's spirit. He ordered the Israelites to go. And they were not only allowed to leave the land of Egypt, but the Egyptians showered them with riches as they went. This ended 430 years of the children of Israel living in the land of Egypt as slaves. So the Israelite people went on their way to their promised land. But Pharaoh soon realized that he had lost, he had given up his great slave base. So he led his army to recapture them. And they overtook them camping by the Red Sea. We read this in Exodus 14, 10 to 12. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in this wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone. We will die and let us serve with the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Once again, they find themselves in a corner, and they start with the all-too-familiar go-to response of doubting and blaming God. And we know how that ended at the edge of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, 28 to 31. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on the right and on the left. 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They feared the Lord and again believed in the Lord. Yeah, right. Until the next time. Doubt and blame God. Experience God's mighty hand of blessing. See him answer. Trust him again until the next time. Has this happened in your life? Find yourself in a corner. You start with your go-to response of, well, doubting or blaming God or wondering where God is. And then you experience God's mighty hand of blessing and you trust him again until the next time. That's just like the three kings in the desert. In verse 10, it says, The king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has summoned us three kings only to be handed over to Moab. How often when facing a challenge do God's people seem to totally forget God's great blessings and deliverance and faithfulness and provision all through our lives up to that point? So what did the three kings do? They finally decided to give God a try. Verse 11, But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? And officers of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah, the great prophet. We do the same thing. We do all that we can do, all we want to do, and then we finally say, well, I guess all I can do now is pray. And you just know that God is jumping up and down saying, yes, I was hoping you'd call me. I was hoping you'd pick me finally. Elisha, even though new to the prophet job, had done a few miracles. In 2 Kings 2, a spring had become polluted with toxins and no one could drink it. Elisha spoke to it and it became fresh water. A bit later, some people were making fun of God's prophet Elisha. He didn't have any hair, so they were calling him Baldy. And he cursed them. And then bears came out of the woods and attacked them. Read the Bible, it's in there. So since pastors are related to the prophetic office, never make any negative comments about your pastor's hair. You never know what will happen. The king's called for a prophet. So Elisha enters the scene. We need to know that the kings had gotten so far away from God, they barely even knew his name. It's kind of like when we're in trouble. You, you got any God dust out there you can sprinkle on this and make the, the water come? We do the same thing. We try to do it all by ourselves, and when it's beyond us, we finally seek God. Sometimes a great need can be the greatest thing that happens to us. It drives us to deeper dependence on God to show us that we needed him all along. Enter Elisha. You would think he would start with his best opening line, something to establish his authority and earn their approval and respect, like be invited to the White House to address the president and his cabinet, but look what Elisha says in verse 13. What have I to do with you? Go to your father's prophets or to your mother's. It's not a way to win friends and influence people. So, so you want some God in your life now. Yeah, I, I bet you do. His attitude is like Elijah when he mocked the prophets of uh, the false gods in 1 Kings 18.7. Pray louder, he said to them, if Baal really is a god... Maybe he is thinking, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping, so you have to wake him up. And Elijah confronts the kings in the same way, in verse 14. 
as the Lord of hosts lives, whom I serve, implied that I serve him and you don't, were it not that I have regard for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, the best of the kings standing there in his opinion, I would give you neither a look nor a glance. In other words, as a prophet of God Almighty, whom you've ignored until now, you aren't even worth my time. However, in verse 15 he says, but get me a musician, usually a harpist. Bring me a harpist. That seems kind of odd. You have this new prophet. The nation is about to die of thirst in the desert. You're the only one that can connect us with God, and you want some mood music? Prophets would all often have a musician who would accompany them to help clear their minds to create an atmosphere to hear God. It didn't increase God's presence. It just increased their sensitivity to God's presence. It wasn't background. It was background setting that helped them as they would hear and speak the word of God. And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and the kings were listening intently, expecting a word of hope, a word of encouragement, a word of water. He says in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. What? Tell your troops, start digging. Dig ditches, lots of them, all over. Fill the whole area with ditches. Make the, the valley full of ditches. This is not what they're expecting to hear. The troops are already dry and thirsty in the desert. The kings are just looking for a quick way to turn on some water. But God wants them in a weakened state in the desert to dig not one ditch, not a few ditches, but to make the valley full of ditches. They have a decision to make. Do they listen to the word of the Lord as spoken about by the prophet Elisha? Do they trust God even though they do not understand? Do they pick up their faith in him and begin digging ditches to prepare for his answer? How about us? Do we listen to the word of the Lord when we are directed? Do we trust God even when we do not totally understand? Do we pick up our faith in him and begin digging in to prepare for his answer? Faith is a work order. In Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You want to see some refreshing water? Dig a ditch. You want to see God bless you financially? Put him first and dig a ditch. Get yourself a budget, as hard as that's hard to say. You want a better marriage or a better relationship with your kids, a more dedicated Christian family, then begin to do the hard work of digging in so God can do his work. You have to be willing to dig in, to, to begin digging into your need, to see what ditch digging preparation you have to do so God can fill that ditch. There's a challenge here. What ditches do you need to get dirty digging even before you see one drop of water? God will send the water. But I need to start digging my ditch. Turn to somebody and say, dig a ditch. Turn and say, dig a ditch. He didn't just want them to dig one ditch, remember. He said, I want the valley full of ditches. It's hard to do. You're in a desert valley, a dry season in your life. There's no hope in sight. You're already tired and weary. Your muscles are sore from not having proper hydration. And now God wants you to dig a ditch for some water that you can see nowhere it's going to come from. And that's why it's called faith. That's why I called trust. The faith to go beyond wanting something to begin to dig in for it to happen. 
A lot of people don't experience God doing new things in their lives because they don't pick up their faith and begin to dig. There are times when God says, be still, and there are times when God says, grab your faith and dig a ditch. It's not that God can't dig ditches. He didn't need them to dig the ditches. I mean, God can dig a ditch. Have you ever seen the Grand Canyon? That's a serious ditch. It wasn't that God needed them to be in his labor force. It wasn't that he needed or wanted ditches at all. He wanted their faith and trusting motion to begin before he moved. There's an element of faith in believing God to do what only he can do. And there are many times when you need to do your part to prepare for it to come. So if you're in a valley today and you need God to send some water and you want God to act, it just may require you getting off your seat, picking up your faith, and start digging into that area. What areas of your life do you want God to move in? Pray for discernment. Pray for what actions are there, Lord? Any efforts, any ditches I need to dig so you can, you can fill them. Don't expect God to send the water until you've begun to dig some faith ditches of preparation. Many years ago, there was a drought in Europe, and a pastor called his church to a special prayer meeting to ask God to send the much-needed rain. It was a bright and cloudless day, and a little girl named Emily was the only one who brought an umbrella. They asked her why. She said, well, since we're praying for rain, I thought I should bring an umbrella. And they chuckled, and the minister laughed and patted her on the head. And they prayed, and the winds rose, and the clouds rolled in, and sure enough, the heavens opened, and down came a torrent of rain. And little Emily was the only big, smiling, dry one, while the rest of the congregation went home soaked. Second King 3 continues in 18 to 20. Elisha's speaking. This is only a trifle in the sight of the Lord, for he, is, he will also hand Moab over to you. You shall conquer every fortified city and every choice city, every good tree you shall fell, all springs of water you will stop up, and every good piece of land you will ruin with stones. The next day, about the time of the morning offering, suddenly water began to flow from the direction of Edom until the country was filled with water. Today's challenge is to begin to dig a ditch in the area where you most need God to move in your life. To prepare for God to move, if you can't see a sign of how he will fill your need, do not ask God to bless you at work. If you're not digging your ditches at work, arriving and leaving on time, doing a good job, an outstanding job, going above and beyond. Do not ask God to improve your marriage if you're not digging your ditches in that marriage, being a good husband, a good wife, being attentive and affectionate and thoughtful. Do not ask for God to improve your relationships with your kids or relatives or friends if you're not digging your ditches, doing your part for that to happen. Do not ask God to improve your health if you're not digging your ditches in your diet, your exercise, your rest, and your recreation. Do not ask God to improve your finances if you're not willing to dig in there and be a good steward of those finances. And as I was praying about this message, I thought I had pretty well covered the passage at this point. And application. And, and then the Lord, in my prayer time, brought an additional thought to me. Before you dig a ditch, you have dirt. Until you take the dirt out, you can't have that ditch. Until you take the dirt out to make a ditch, cannot, God cannot fill the ditch with his provision. You have to dig out the dirt to make room for his blessings. Let me say that again. Before you have a ditch, you have to 
you have dirt. Until you take the dirt out, you can't have a ditch. Until you take the dirt out to make a ditch, God cannot fill the ditch, ditch with his provision. You have to dig out the dirt to make room for his blessings. See if these scriptures sound familiar. Romans 8, 12 to 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 5 to 10. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed while you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off your old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Philippians 3.8 More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Wow. Talk about digging out the dirt. You hear words in there of tearing out, cutting off, throwing away, put to death, get rid of, strip off, untangle from, and regard as garbage and dung. Anything that is holding you to where you have been and not to where God wants you to go. Dig that dirt out. Jesus is walking up and down these aisles and up here with me now. He is touching hearts and saying, get digging. Dig out the dirt. Open up your life for my blessings. Maybe there are some things you need to dig out in relationships or in your marriage so God can move you into the new life that he's challenging, he's calling you to. The new life that God has for you begins when you start digging out the dirt and be, begin preparing to make room for his blessings. I passed at a church in State College, Pennsylvania for 10 years. Any Penn State people here? We are. Thank you. Okay. Outside of State College, there is a little village on Route 45 named Pine Grove Mills. It's a quaint little town, not much to talk about. It's got a few homes, one gas station, one bank, one ice cream parlor, and one light. At the stoplight, you can either go straight, you go to State College or away from State College, or you can turn and go up a hill, a very steep hill that basically goes over a mountain. And at the top of that mountain is they've created a very small, simple gravel parking lot overlook. And from that overlook, you can see miles around. And I could see from up there even the church that I was pastoring. And I'd go up there on a regular basis and pray for the church, for the people in the church, and to reach the area for Jesus. And one time, I, I drove up there to pray toward evening, and the small gravel lot was full of cars. And curious, I got in my car, and I recognized uh, a pastor friend of mine and some other friends from his church. And... They're all standing around a big metal garbage barrel, and they had, they had a fire going in it. And I asked a friend of mine what they're doing. He said they're having a burning ceremony. I said, well, what, what's that? He said, well, 
We invited any and all of the church to bring anything that was keeping them from following Jesus to be burned. There were CDs, DVDs, magazines, cigarettes, bottles, pictures, drug paraphernalia, all kinds of things going in that barrel, all thrown in the fire, and there was a huge fire, and there were tears and shouts of joy and singing. They were digging out the dirt in their lives so God could fill them with his new blessings. A few years ago, an excellent Christian movie was released, released entitled Facing the Giants. Have you ever seen it? Have you seen that? In the story of a football coach, it's the story of a football coach, Coach Grant Taylor, had a failing football season. Many people were turning against him. And at his lowest time, a man, a praying man, steps into his office. Coach greets him, Mr. Bridges, and Mr. Bridges, Bridges reads this from his Bible. Revelation chapter 3 says, we serve a God that opens doors that no one can shut, and he shuts doors that no one can open. He says, Behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He says, Coach Taylor, the Lord is not through with you yet. You still have an open door here, and until the Lord moves you, you are to bloom right where you're planted. I just felt led to come and tell you that today. He leaves the office. The coach gets up out of his chair and follows him out, and he stops him. He says, Mr. Bridges, do, do you believe God told you to come tell me that? I do. I admit to you I have been struggling, but I've also been praying. I just don't see God at work here. Mr. Bridges responded, Grant, I heard a story about two farmers who desperately needed rain, and both of them prayed for rain, but only one of them went out and prepared his fields to receive it. Which one do you think trusted God to send the rain? Coach said, well, the one who prepared his fields for it. Mr. Bridges says, which one are you? God will send the rain when he's ready. You need to prepare your fields to receive it. You have some dry areas in your life? Areas where you would love for God to fill and refresh? Well, pick up your faith and start digging some ditches. There will be times when you'll want to quit and you'll be tired of digging, but keep digging away. God specializes in blessing those who pick up their faith and prepare the ditches that only he can fill. And if anyone questions, what are you doing? Why are you so busy? Why have you changed? Why are you so focused? Why are you so committed to improving yourself and your lot in life? Why are you doing all this digging into your life? You just smile and say, I'm preparing for rain. Let us pray. Father, we all have a lot of dirt to dig out, a lot of things to get rid of as we dig our ditches. We all have needs and areas we would love for you to fill in a new and refreshing way. We ask for your guidance and your strength. We've got our shovels in our hands. We've got our faith in our hearts. We have your word, and we're trusting you again and again for true refreshment that only you can bring. Work with us. Use us. See our efforts. Help us know our part so that you can change us and make us new like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.